0: Today, more on the complexities of a new start, whether we want that start or not.
1: Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer for a conversation about faith life and culture we'll look at old ideas through a new lens turn those culture wars on their head and paint a picture of the way things could be if you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot pull up a chair you're in the right place
0: actually, if I'm being honest, it's also whether we want the complexity or not, because it is certainly built into the problem that comes up when someone has committed an offense, someone has transgressed, uh, because there is the person who has transgressed and the one who's been transgressed against. Uh, And then there's the community in which it happened. And there is uh, there are a lot of ideas to try to meet out when we're deciding how we're going to respond to it. And so last time we introduced, introduced the discussion by just talking about uh, some of the items that come up in Scripture, not simply to say, here's how the Bible says to restore a relationship, or here's how the Bible says reconciliation happens, not that, but to recognize in some of the, uh, in particularly Old Testament examples, There's one particular Old Testament example used about stealing, but particularly in this Old Testament example to say, how would we think about this, even if we were just looking at it sociologically, even just thinking about how societies formerly had managed uh, the, the relationship that remains after some kind of offense has taken place? What do you do with it? And so we talked through uh, the person's own virtue and then their debt to the person from whom they took something, and then the social contract or our relationship with God, however far you want that to go. And obviously, I think it goes to God. But then we talked about the contexts within which those have to be thought of reformation, restitution, and then the idea of punishment itself or atonement in place of that punishment, and so on. And we talked about how that fits with ethical theories, virtue ethics, and utilitarianism and deontology and how that uh, how those come together to reveal something that should humble us in trying to solve a, a problem like what to do with a person who has abused someone else or what to do with a, a, when that abuser apologizes and tries to make things right and then we see some value in the abuser and say well maybe they should be restored to to the position in which they served before and when is that appropriate? When it when is it not appropriate? And so on. So we started to address that and to make the point uh, last time we ended with the point that we have to we have to settle in a position of humility, acknowledging that the pure complexity of the issues themselves require our acknowledgement that there's not going to be a perfect solution. Not in a fallen world. And and for for everything I know and understand, we don't have a choice about that. We're in a fallen world, and we're not just in it as saints who have arrived clean within this ugh, nasty place, but instead, we also bring this brokenness to the equation ourselves, and because of that, uh, we have to look carefully on these issues and humbly on these issues in order to resolve them. And so what I wanted to do today is move forward into thinking specifically about how to talk to the offender about what has happened and how we examine what's going on in the offender when they come to a position where they, even they say, I want change. I want something to be different. And so I'm sorry that I did it, or I'm I'm so sorry, how do I make this up? Whichever attitude they bring that they want to bring, that they want to see change, or that change is coming to them, whether they want it or not. So how do we look at it from the offender's perspective? And then when we have done that, I want us to take, and these will be next steps, but I think we can get to the second one here. I want us to look at it from the perspective of the community as a whole. Not, not meaning how do we get together in a council meeting and decide what we're going to do without offender. But I mean as, as those of us who are just looking at the whole issue and saying what, what, how do we resolve these things or how do we understand how to resolve these things that we grasp what it means to be an individual within a community. And how to balance the reality that we're very individualistic, as I've talked about in one episode after another on this podcast, that we're very individualistic, and yet by our nature, and there's no escaping this, we are also communitarian. We belong to a community. We find our identity in the community. We don't admit that in our society, but in those ways even that we have suppressed or that we hide in some way, we're still part of a community and how that plays in to resolving this as well. So that's the goal today, to speak to it uh, from the per- not, not from the perspective of the offender, but looking at it in terms of what it means about the offender that we consider all these ideas. So speaking to the offender, what, what, does, what does this confluence of issues bring up that have to do with transgression, offense and, and the person who was offended and the fact that God himself has been offended and the fact that there's a debt that's now old how, how do how do we address all those things. Okay, so let's start in this way. First by saying that an offender often comes to light in our minds when they have regret because there's something that makes us aware that something's wrong. Clearly, in a recalcitrant offender, in uh, you know, someone who is uh, so intransigent to the possibility of change at all that they don't care. They, they don't care that what you think they're doing is wrong, and they don't even judge what they're doing as wrong. They may not judge it as right or wrong. They just know that's what I'm going to continue doing. It's like the, the evil that's present at the beginning of A Clockwork Orange, that kind of character. So what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, and I, I don't, you know, the 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 brokenness that comes in having no remorse, no regret, no uh, apology, no recognition of wrongdoing or anything like that is for a different discussion, you know, and, and obviously is going to lead to conversations about punishment and justice, and that's why those would be important as well. But beginning at the point where an offender does have regret What is it that we need to extract from what we recognize in that offender? And by regret, I I mean the bare bones reality that the offender wishes it hadn't happened, that we just wish we hadn't stolen the cookie. I, I wish I hadn't dropped the turkey. I wish, you can tell I've got holiday meals on the mind, right? So I wish these things hadn't taken place, but they did. But it's done neutrally oh, man, I wish that hadn't happened. It's not, it doesn't matter whether it's morally motivated or, or simply out of a loss in the moment or whatever it is, and it could be from that, and regret is almost always from that in some way, that there is a cost that's now being realized. Uh, you know, in the, in the famous poem, uh, the, the idea in, in Robert Frost's famous poem, uh, The Road Not Taken, the idea of regret is what's going on, but it's in a sense of saying, but I've learned to deal with it knowing that I had to choose one or the other. And when I had to choose one path or the other, I realized that choosing one meant I had to leave the other behind. And so I will reminisce on these things at some point. I'm not, I'm not reading the poem right now, obviously. I'd get a lot more correct, but, but I do know how the poem goes. And in, and in the core of it, there is this moment where he pauses and says, and somewhere I shall recall with a sigh. And in that sigh is the idea of regret. Ah, oh, I wish I could have gone down that road too. But we can't go down every road. And so that innocuously, we can wish things were other than what they are at, at, at any level at all. And it expresses a sense of regret. And there's always going to be regret. And when people say, no regrets, I, I'm not going to have any regrets, all, all they're implying by that is, I don't want to have anything in my life where I would say, wow, I kind of wish that had come out differently, regardless of the motives. I, I understand that. It's a desire to say, these are the choices I made, and those are the ones I'm going to live with, but it still makes sense to me to say, I love the fact that I got to serve as a pastor in a church for 18 years, almost, for 17 years, that I've been the president of a college for eight years and that before that I was a professor for 10 years. And I love that, and I regret that I didn't get to be an astronomer. I regret that I didn't get to spend my time working on cosmology. That doesn't mean I'm going to go back and do it differently, but I can have those regrets. So that's how innocuously I mean the word regret. And, And again, we'll add detail to this as we move forward and begin to talk about remorse in a moment. But under regret, it always is, I think, or or at least it could be emerging from a sense of what was lost, that there is a cost to the direction that I've gone with my life to the choice that I made. And in an offender, there's 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 going to be regret. you know when when people when a spouse is abusive of another spouse, of his spouse, uh, when when that spouse is abusive and then, there is this sense of distance that, that's created with their, with their wife in this case, as we talk about a man abusing a wife, that there's a sense of distance there, that they've lost some intimacy or that they've lost some confidence or trust or that they've gotten in trouble with someone else. In every one of those, there's, a, there's an expression of regret. Oh, I am sorry about that. I, I wish that hadn't happened. There may be even a statement that it'll never happen again, but it's just with the idea that they wish that it hadn't happened, that cost is what provoked the regret it may not be a change at all in character it may not even be a genuine admission that what motivated it wasn't worth motivating it but it is a sense that i didn't want to give up the confidence that you used to have in me as your husband. You see what I'm saying? So regret can be that sort of shallow or empty just based on whatever the cost was, whatever was lost, the fact that you were found out, or the fact that there's some pressure coming on you from your community. You shouldn't treat her like that. Or that there is a personal loss yourself in intimacy, for instance. Or maybe even you've gained new information. I read a book on abuse and I realized that I was doing that and I really regret what I did in my background, and so on. We'll talk more about that when we get to the community. I think regret is about the most we can say about what was happening with Judas, and I mentioned Judas and Zacchaeus as examples in contrast with each other of how people can respond to things that they know were transgressions on their part in the beginning part of a process that they might hope is bringing change in some way. And so on regret, I think Judas is a perfect example. Uh, in Matthew uh, 27, it describes him this way. And again, uh, I, I'm not even using these prescriptively to say, well, the Bible says regret means this. I'm just reading a narrative about a character and saying it, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it, that we would recognize that Judas has regret, but but also that something is missing here or there's some reason that it doesn't go far enough or that it's simply not acceptable. And so it says in, in Matthew 27, after everything is said and done, right? So when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, so he's done the deed, he's betrayed him with a kiss, he's turned him over, that Jesus has been taken, and now Jesus is being condemned. And it says, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, now, And we don't know what the cost is for that in Judas's mind that makes it negative. People speculate about it. Uh, he didn't really want Jesus to be condemned. He was hoping Jesus would take a stand and make himself the public savior of the world and so on. There are people who speculate that way. There are people who speculate the other way, that he realizes psychologically, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I've brought about the judgment of this innocent lamb, you know, and so on. I don't know what his motivation is. I do know this, that when he sees that Jesus is condemned, he regrets what he has done. It's, it's actually translated that way in some versions. Uh, this version, I think this is ESV, says he changed his mind and brought—it's not the word for repentance, but it is a word closely related to it. It has the same kind of meta beginning to it to say, uh, you know, there is a change in his attitude about this thing, but it's a it's a change— which amounts to regret, I think, in the way we describe it. How how does it come? It says he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, of course, he hasn't offended them. They simply gave him 30 pieces of silver because it was well worth it to them. That was the price. He thinks somehow he's doing a restitution by giving the 30 pieces of silver back. Well, that's not the offense he committed against Jesus. But for him, it's a way of saying, I don't want the past to have happened. I regret that this transaction took place. So I'm, I, I, I want a refund. I, I want to get that, I want to restart or a refund. I want, I want to get it over again. You know? And it's not going to work out for him. So he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, That doesn't mean anything to us. Uh, we don't think this is a sin at all. You know? and, and this is your action. You deal with it. See to it yourself. That's what they say. And so, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. That harsh judgment isn't just coincidentally mentioned in Matthew. It's brought up in Acts chapter 1 again, you know, with a harsh statement about his judgment. And this is not one where we have the prerogative in the New Testament of saying, oh, but maybe his flesh was lost so that his soul could be delivered in the day of judgment. He's used throughout the rest of the New Testament as the model of those people who would betray Christians into the hands of their persecutors uh, and who pretended to be believers in the process. That's what's going on in the book of 1 John. These people pretended to be one of us, and they're the people who were, in truth, not followers of Jesus at all. He is Judas, is the Antichrist. He is the model of those who are outside the faith and do not find redemption, and yet he had regret for what he had done. But regret isn't the sum total of what has to be present for us to have the right response to our own transgression. So an offender, apparently, just reading the the case of Judas here, and again, not, not just trying to read it prescriptively, but I think it makes sense to us to say, hey, man, too little, too late taking the 30 pieces of silver back and thinking somehow you can just undo your betrayal of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where you kissed him in order to hand him over to the people who wanted to kill him, who who you had to hand him over to because they gave you money? And now you come back and say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Is it all okay now? Can, can we just make it okay now? Uh, that regret isn't going to get you there, right? That, I, I don't have to read that as a biblical prescription. I, I can just say as a human being, that makes sense to me. Uh, that part of the story makes sense to me. And so regret's not enough. However, the fact that regret is not enough, and we're just on this first part right now, but the fact that regret is not enough doesn't mean that it isn't something and that it's not important. So regret, because it can be so shallow and self-serving, and I think that is what's going on with Judas. I, I don't know that all of that's present in him, but it seems to be. It, it is. It can be shallow and self-serving, and maybe it always is. Maybe it always is wrapped up in wishing I had not arrived where I am right now in a selfish way. Maybe that's always true. But it's not just that. And... Uh, even if uh, even if every bit of that is true, every time there is regret, regret itself doesn't inherently become useless in that, because it can be the on-ramp toward real change, and I think we see that all the time. And, and I'm th- I, like I'm thinking right off the top of my head of David, whose uh, example I'll read in just a moment, because David certainly does more than have regret. And, I, and I'm telling you, if you take it out of its historical context where we know he's the messianic figure and we understand the backstory to what's going on with him and so on, if you take it take it just a little bit out of its context, David's a real jerk in some ways. And I maybe that's not the ideal word for it, but I mean, he would not be the positive hero in a story. He would be a villain. In most of these stories, because of what he does, the number of people who die because he makes these decisions that are just so obviously wrong. And so, what does David do in response to one of those, where he's taken uh, a uh, you know Uriah the Hittite's wife, and he's now uh, got a baby coming from that, and and so in response to that, not, <laughs> there's not enough regret. Uh, for him to turn to remorse and repent in that moment. Instead, well, let's just cover it up by killing the husband. That's what he does. In all of that guilt, he's finally confronted by a prophet who brings him to a point where he understands his own guilt in some way, a uh, deep way that finds its way into expression. in, you know, maybe one of the most famous, is certainly one of the most famous psalms, maybe the most famous psalm concerning repentance, Psalm 51 when he finally says for i know my transgressions and my sin is always before me and this is this doesn't seem to be a man just showing up and saying hey here's 30 pieces of silver back you know can can we just make it okay now is everything all right he acknowledges that his sin goes far beyond the offense that he committed against uriah and against Bathsheba, and against the, the, the child that's going to die because of what he's done, he acknowledges that there's something more going on here because he says, and I think the point of this, uh, the, uh, ex- the hyperbole that he uses, uh, obviously by using the word hyperbole, I'm making the point, I think he's saying this to emphasize the importance of this part of the offense that he's committed against you and you only have I sinned, I think that's him saying, even if Uriah made this right with me, which he can't because I killed him, and even if Bathsheba made this right with me, which she can't because she's not in a position of power with me, and even if my child could forgive me, which he can't because he's already in the place to which all of us have to go when we reach the end of our lives, even if they could, it wouldn't make things right. Even if I could get my 30 pieces of silver back, it wouldn't make things right. So wh- what needs to happen? Well, God, I know that until my offense against you is made right, nothing else will matter. And so against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's what matters now, what you saw. The, the extent of his regret has gone far beyond just wishing he could undo the past to acknowledging a moral culpability for that violation that took place in the past i didn't just get caught i don't just wish it hadn't happened i acknowledge that i did it judas acknowledges that a little bit you know i sinned when i when i betrayed the innocent blood but it's this quotation of the sin against the innocent blood and, and it's not being made right with an acknowledgement of who he really violated. It's only coming to the chief priests and saying, here, ha- have your money back. David instead comes to God himself and says, unless you make it right, nothing I do will matter, not even the sacrifices I can offer, so that you may be justified in your word and so that you can be blameless in your judgment. We'll come back to that in the idea of resignation towards the end here, a concept that came to me, and and, and partially a lot of this conversation is happening because of an article I read by David French, which I'll mention later, but since I brought up resignation, I want to mention it now, that if you want to go look it up, you should look it up from David French, this article about the difference between restoration and resignation. So anyway. He says, so uh, against you and you only have I sinned, David says, and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So what I'm suggesting is, as we're beginning to hear others who have offended say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean to do that, or in our own hearts, when we've done something that's wrong and we're trying to figure out how to claw our way out of the pit, I know, I know that's not what grace is about, I understand. I'm saying where we are when we've offended. How do I dig my way out of this hole? Then when we start doing that, we start recognizing the distinction between these ideas and, and that we start bringing the better ideas to bear on how we respond. And regret isn't going to get us across the line where anything is actually changed. That's just where we acknowledge that we wish the world was different than it is, but it's not. Remorse acknowledges this. So And remorse may, and I think almost certainly does, emerge from regret. I just don't know, you know, philosophically whether I can say it always does, but I think it does. Psychologically, maybe, I don't know. But it may or certainly does emerge from regret. But it includes more than regret. Not just the desire that I had not done it, but the acknowledgement that it was wrong and that I should not have done it. There's something in me that acknowledges that going forward, this would not be acceptable ever. And not because of the consequences that I ran into, not, not because I couldn't get away with it, but because in this case, I realized that God himself was the person that I violated, that I offended, and I want his judgment to be what matters. So the difference between regret and remorse becomes important, but then beyond that, there is the thing that's been present in both of these so I'd, I'd like to make things right with you. So here are your 30 pieces of silver, but it's not enough. That doesn't make it right. And David's saying, I, I don't have anything that I can restore to you. So it's really, Lord, just about acknowledging your words and the blamelessness of your judgment and what you do that we're having to deal with the concept of restitution. And in restitution, you have the ideas that go, I think, with Zacchaeus, that we're, we're talking about Zacchaeus. And actually, it was uh, in a conversation about this topic, as I was discussing maybe doing an episode on this, Daisy brought up uh, my producer, the person who produces the show for us, you know, and she has a Master of Arts in Counseling. She's a licensed professional counselor. She uh, she brought up Zacchaeus and the things that he says about restoring to other people the things that he had taken from them. And it, and it becomes really important in that narrative. I think it's uh, in Luke 19 where it talks about it it becomes really important in that story that he is wanting to make things right by restoring things that he had messed up in the past. So, uh, as Jesus is entering into Jericho, he's passing through. I'm reading you the story from Luke 19. Again, just to see how this particularly sorrowful person, with, I think, obviously, both regret and remorse, comes to a recognition of his need to restore things, to provide restitution. And so he entered into Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. This is in Luke 19, in the middle of verse 2. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Those statements are he is a a Judas to his people. He is collecting money on behalf of the Roman government that's occupying them, and he's a Jew. So he is the, you know, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the Old Testament, you know, these people who stood against Moses and ended up part of them being swallowed into the earth, Korah, and and his family. This is Zacchaeus. He is betraying the people of Israel in favor of their occupying enemy, the Romans, who are wicked in their view. And so he is saying he's a chief tax collector doesn't just mean he works for the IRS. That's not this. This is, he is the enemy. He is collecting taxes on behalf of the enemy so they can continue their oppression of our families. That's how wicked this man is. And he's not just doing it neutrally, he's rich. So he's not just keeping his percentage, he's doing something to abuse. And I know you can say, well, maybe it's not this way, but if you, and I hope to be able to do this maybe today, but if I don't get to it today, earlier in Luke, when he's dealing with John the Baptist's message, it is about people like Zacchaeus, who are inclined to use their positions of power in the authorities that are present in Israel at the time, the soldiers who came to John the Baptist, remember, and tell them not to defraud people and not to take too much from them. And that's what Zacchaeus is doing. He's defrauding, he has betrayed the people of Israel, and he is defrauding them for his own gain. So he's rich while other Israelites are suffering. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Hmm, something's different in Zacchaeus. Yeah, maybe it's just curiosity. I don't know. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. And uh, I, uh, well, I, I would love to exposit the whole passage because I heard a, a good friend of mine used to be our chief of staff here at Criswell College, Winston Hopman. He preached a sermon on this. And uh, he really covered it excellently well. You might be able to look it up at Lake Highlands Baptist Church, by the way. They have uh, their sermons online. But I would encourage you to do that, to hear the the whole idea about Zacchaeus. I just want to cover this one aspect of it, the idea of restitution as we get to it. So anyway, he ran ahead, climbed up into the sycamore tree, up instead of down, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus was. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to Zacchaeus, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Jesus offers to come and stay at Zacchaeus' house, this betraying person to the people of Israel. Jesus is going to come stay in his house. And Zacchaeus is overjoyed with the prospect. He hurried down and came and received Jesus joyfully. And in verse 7 it says, and when they all saw it, they did what I would expect them to do. They grumbled. Are you kidding me? Because this guy has a bunch of money and a nice house, Jesus is going to go stay with him? This guy has been persecuting our families. He's been taking our money. Their opinion makes perfect sense. Zacchaeus should be canceled from the culture. And it makes sense that you would say that. And Jesus says, I'm going to go eat at your house. It'll be okay. I'm going to come and stay with you. And so they say, what on earth? He's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner like this? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. And this is the evidence that he's got more than just regret that he might have a bad reputation or something like that. Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's not restitution. This is not, I'm going to give back the money that I've stolen from other people. That comes in the next phrase. This is him saying, I am guilty of enriching myself while the people around me have been suffering, and I don't want to be that way. He is, I mean, before our eyes, he's converting from this covetous, selfish person who's getting everything for himself to someone who's generous. I see that people around me don't have enough, and I I give half of everything I have. I'm giving it away. I'm giving it away to them, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything. And, and again, these conditional clauses, I mean, you, you, and I think it's right to criticize people when they hedge their apologies. Well, you know, if I said something that offended you, I, I'm so sorry. Uh, I understand why we wouldn't take an apology like that sincerely. This is not that kind of conditional, uh, a conditional clause if I have defiled anyone. Or defrauded anyone. This is the same idea as if there is any consolation in Christ, then this is how we ought to live. Well, we know there's consolation in Christ and we know he's defrauded people. He is a tax collector working for the Roman government, oppressing the Jewish people, making himself rich. So there's no doubt he's defrauded people and he's abused his position in order to do it. And so he says, if I have, since I, it basically means, since I have defrauded people. So of those people that I have defrauded, that's the conditionality of it. So speaking specifically to people that I cheated, can you imagine how the ears would perk up in that crowd? Wait a minute, I remember when he took more money from me than he was supposed to. He said, if I have, you know, those people that I have defrauded, I restore it fourfold. I'll give it four times. Oh, wait a minute. Remember, we read about this. In the Old Testament, we read about a person who stole a sheep and needed to restore four. Do you remember this idea? The, the payment that's going back is not coincidental. It shows up over and over in the Old Testament. I know there are other numbers too. If you catch him while it's still in his hand, then he has to pay back twice as much. Or if it's an ox, it's five times as much. You know, I know it's, it's different in different settings, but four is one of those primary numbers that shows up where you say you've stolen something. And so your, your restitution is four times what you stole. And Zacchaeus says, you know, I'll do that. I will do exactly that. And so he says, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. There's something different going on here. Since he also is a son of Abraham, what did he buy his way back into salvation? No, that's not, you know, and there's no way on God's green earth you can read Luke's gospel and come to the conclusion that we're supposed to see someone buying their way into heaven because they give away their money. We're not supposed to see that with the rich young ruler. I put that in air quotes. We're not supposed to see him trying to buy his way into heaven, but we are supposed to see the difference between someone who's expressed regret but hasn't made any restitution, in other words, has not brought forth any works that demonstrate that their regret has any moral sincerity to it, has any weight to it. And that's what the remorse brings. It brings this gravity that says, I acknowledge my wrongdoing and I'm willing to face the consequences because I know I I didn't just get caught and I didn't win what I wish I could have won. I don't even wish I could have won it now. I, I don't want that now. I realize that is not where my life should have been. I want it to go a different direction. And so I take all this stuff that I've gotten because I was serving the Roman government, this political movement, instead of the people of God. Here, take half of everything and give it to the poor. Oh, a half? What do you do with the rest of it? Oh, and I I cheated a bunch of people. And I'm so ashamed of that, but I realize now that that was wrong. And I can't just give it back to them. That wouldn't make things right. I'll give them back four times as much as if I had stolen their sheep, as if I had taken it from them. Here, take your lamb back and take four others with it. I restore it fourfold. So when Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, he is saying, I know he was favoring the Gentiles. I know he had chosen to side with the Romans, and because of that, you treated him like an outsider, but I'm inviting him back into the family. I want you to see he's one of us. He is part of the family. He's part of the covenant, and he's part of the covenant because he's keeping the covenant. He's actually fulfilling the things that it says, not because he's willing to give back four times as much, but in his willingness to give back four times as much, acknowledging that he had actually broken the relationship that he had with God and God's people. And that's why Jesus says in verse 10, because that's why I came. The son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so in his reformation, remaking him into a different kind of person, he's giving half of his money away to the poor. You get that? He's a new kind of character. Remember, Reformation goes with the idea that we've broken our virtue and we're living in vice instead of virtue. We're not the person we're supposed to be. And he's saying, I was a person who just wanted to be rich before. Now I want to be a person who takes care of those who are poor. I want to give to those who don't have. Secondly, restitution, I'm restoring to the defrauded four times what I took from them. And then what Jesus brings instead of punishment Which he's, you know, Zacchaeus, he has no no leverage here. He has no ability to say to Jesus, oh, and because I've done these two things, you owe me restitution with the people of God. Jesus just does it instead of punishing him. And David had said the words. I want your words, Lord, to be blameless and so that you can be blameless in your judgment. And Jesus could very well have done that. You give it all back and you still deserve all of your judgment, but he doesn't. In his remorse and in the restitution he's provided, Jesus responds, acknowledging that he came to seek and to save the lost, providing instead of punishment, atonement. That he also is now a son of Abraham. You're made at one with the people of God, at one with the God of the people of God. Restitution comes to, his, comes to Zacchaeus. And then, so when you get, when you see those three things together, I mean, I think what you're seeing is a picture of what John the Baptist was describing. I was hoping we would get to this today because it fits so well with Zacchaeus, what John the Baptist is describing in his ministry. So in Luke 3, John the Baptist's ministry is described just before you get to Jesus turning 30 and then having his genealogy, you know, in that section of Luke. In Luke 3, it describes John the Baptist's ministry this way, saying, he said, therefore, to the crowds, remember, he's out by the river, he's baptizing people, and they're coming to him, and he's prophetically uttering these these statements, and he says, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. (laughs) So they're saying, oh, we want baptism. We want to cross the river into the covenant with God. We want to demonstrate that we're part of the people of God, so we'll be baptized. He says, "You're, you're, you're snakes. You're on the wrong side of the seed. You're the the people who need to be crushed by the heel of the Messiah, not the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent, you brood of vipers, who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. You ought to be bearing fruits that are in keeping with repentance. And I think this is the idea that he's conveying, that what Zacchaeus does is bear fruit, which is in keeping with his repentance. Now, and and I mean, you don't have to draw that conclusion yet, but it becomes obvious in the next verses because this is like a preface to what we're going to see happen in Zacchaeus. Keep listening. And don't begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father, because remember how he ends the story with Zacchaeus is Jesus saying he is a son of Abraham to those people who were rejecting Zacchaeus because he was siding with the Gentiles, Right. And yet Jesus says, no, this is a son of Abraham because he's brought forth fruits that are in keeping with repentance. So as John the Baptist goes on in Luke 3, he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, meaning I'm cutting down the trees that don't have good fruit. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd said to him, well, then what do you want from us? What do you want us to do? And he said to them, if you have two tunics, then share with the one who has none. I give half my goods to all the poor. That's what Zacchaeus said. This is what John the Baptist is saying to these people who are saying, we're going to the temple, we're offering our sacrifices, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. What do you want from us? And he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to share with the one who has none. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't defraud anyone. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Well, I mean, this is just begging for us to get to the story of Zacchaeus, isn't it? It's just 16 chapters earlier saying this is what Jesus is going to be seeing as he goes through his ministry. And so he says to the tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And when the soldiers come, these others who are serving in this land to to further the oppression of the people of Israel, regardless of which side they think they're serving on. They say, and we, what shall we do? And he says to them, don't defraud anyone. Don't extort money from anyone. Same meaning. By (laughs) threats or false accusations. I know defraud is broader, but I'm saying in, in these two passages, it's the same message. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content." With your wages. This is the fruit of repentance that Zacchaeus brings in Luke chapter 19, giving the evidence that what Zacchaeus demonstrates for us is the repentance that John the Baptist said was so needed from the beginning. There are specific evidences which measure up to repentance. Saying the words, that's not the fruit that measures up to repentance. We would be baptized of you. We we are the children of Abraham. We'd like to join your church. These are not the words that add up to repentance. They say that there's repentance, but they demonstrate no transformation. And so keeping repentance in mind as what the goal is in the offender, there's also this other thing that can happen in an offender that is evidence of genuine repentance uh, and again, it comes from a David French article, which I would encourage you to look up. We'll we'll have it linked uh, in our on our website if you can if you can click through to it. I encourage you to go read it if you get a chance. Uh, love the stuff that David French writes. Always value it. Uh, someone showed me this article in which he contrasts uh, John Profumo and the controversy, the great British controversy that rose over that British politician, war hero slash British politician and then Johnny Hunt in Southern Baptist Life. And in the first of these two episodes, I mentioned Johnny Hunt and his, uh, the record of the things of which he was accused in that report that came out about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's uh, David French's point to say there's a huge contrast between the kind of thing that was going on with Johnny Hunt, and I'm not speaking to him personally, and I don't know him personally, and I haven't related any of the details myself just read the report, you know, where it is. but it seems fairly obvious that it's not time for restitution to happen. for for restoration I mean to happen uh, with Johnny Hunt, but that's what that's what he wants. That's what the people around him want. Oh, it's time for him to be put back on the platform and things to be made right. and And the point in this article by David French, which is worth reading to go way beyond what I'm saying right now, the point in this article with uh, with uh, David that David French wrote, is to say, if you could just see the difference between John Profumo, when he was caught in this scandal in the 50s or 60s in England, there have been movies made about it, and I'm sure books written about it, and it was a pretty bad scandal, and when he was caught, he was just caught red-handed, and his response was a repentant response that resulted in his resignation, not just from Parliament, not just from positions of power and authority, but his resignation that he would never be restored to those positions. And he spent the rest of his life serving in these sort of humble conditions where he's taking care of people's needs behind the scenes. And he ends up decades later with great respect from the people of England, not because he was ever restored to the position that he had before, but because in his newly humbled position, he, uh, res- he, he accepted it. He resigned to that position, resignation. And David French says the contrast between that kind of resignation and the demand for restoration to what we had before uh, may be the difference between genuine repentance and repentance that's not so genuine. So I know we're running short on time now, so I'll just give you a preview of what what I was hoping we would get to today, but what we'll certainly get to in the next episode in talking about this, you know, concept of being sorry and doing something about it instead of sorry, not sorry kind of attitude. Uh, we we need to talk about the community and where it fits into this. And, and I mean by that, that the community plays a role in how we respond emotionally and psychologically and obviously so, socially to the things that we've done that are wrong. And it plays a role in terms of shame and pressure and expectations and all of those things that we will sort of put in a context that allows us to say what ought to be happening. And believe me, there's some complexity involved here because even between the generations, the acceptance of the pressure and shame that might come from the things that one generation thinks is fine, the next generation doesn't, or even everything being off the table in terms of shame. Nobody can tell me what I ought to think about myself kind of stuff, which, uh, which I understand why people say that. All those kinds of questions make this even more complicated than before. So what I, what I want to leave us with today is simply this much of the thought that hopefully you've grasped, gained, not grasped <laughs> as if you couldn't grasp it. Uh, hopefully you've gained at least this much from my yammering today that uh, when we're the offender, that, that we have given up control over the outcome of the change that's coming. Uh, We don't get to control the offended person. We may have put them in the position where they were offended without their choice, but we don't have the prerogative of determining how they're going to respond to that offense. When you slap a person, you don't get to pick whether they slap you back or not. You may have a determination about whether you would want to slap them back or not, but you don't get to decide whether they slap you back or not. That's just the reality of the world, right? Right. And because we don't have control over more than that, we don't have control over the outcome at all, we find ourselves needing a whole lot of what Christianity is, blessedly, fortunately, all about. Kindness and patience and mercy and grace and forgiveness, but also those other things that are always present. Accountability, judgment, which, by the way, is what makes kindness and patience and mercy and grace and forgiveness so important to us. So next time, when we pick up the conversation about all these complexities, we'll be speaking uh, not to the offender so much as to the community as a whole and how the offender fits in with that community, but also to the one who's been offended, to the violated, to the neglected, or to the abused, uh, or to the one who takes up their cause, not psychologically, not to say, here's how you heal or something like that, but say how we think about the offense and the things we need to take into consideration as we resolve it. Not just simply, not just here's your pat answer, but just take these things into consideration. Hopefully with a sense of how we ought to respond when a change needs to come.
1: Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.